We've got a great episode for you this week. We're talking hops and spirits, which makes total sense since we're the Hops and Spirits Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Grimm. we got not one but two interviews this week for you. we got Kevin Patterson joining us here in a little bit to talk uh, some lessons in beer. And then we got Adam Johnson of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail to talk about what's going on with that and the cool uh, nature of what that is. So stick around for that. Uh, but before we get to talking with Kevin, remember you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Search Hops and Spirits or we're just at Hops Spirits, all one word on Instagram and Facebook. And remember, we're sponsored by One Sip Beer Review. Find them on Instagram for their reviews of beers from all across America at One Sip Beer Review. And joining us now on the Hops and Spirits podcast is Kevin Patterson, a Cicerone and national beer judge. He's also the manager of the Beer Trap craft beer store and bar in lexington kentucky kevin thanks for taking some time to talk beer well thank you for having me on anytime you give me an opportunity to talk about beer it's always a good day so thank you very much well you just a little background on yourself you're an army vet and an architect so if people look you up on places you're the the beer architect right did i say that right is that kind of what you went by yeah that's correct it's kind of a mixed match of uh terms that's really fit me the last uh two decades so i just decided to put them together and use that as a username one time and it just kind of stuck and you've done over eight thousand beer reviews on beer advocate you're a moderator of the beer school at the beer trap which is a kind of weekly beer tasting focusing on you know different things and um you know people can ask about you've hosted beer dinners seminars on food and beer pairings cooking with beer is there anything you haven't done with beer yet? <laughs> uh, to be honest with you, you know, I've been an avid home brewer in the past, and I've worked on some collaborations on the commercial level. But you put me in the back of the house of a brew house or a brewery of at some point, you'd be surprised how lost that I might look. <laughs> well, well, we won't put you there today. Uh, I guess my first question is, what it's like, what's it like to be a beer judge and a, and a Cicerone? Because, I mean, those those are some things I, I've heard of Cicerone before, but I've never heard of a national beer judge. So what, what does that entail? Really, it's uh, talking – when you're comparing what a Cicerone is and a beer judge, you're basically saying the same things, but you're using two different sets of vocabulary to talk to two different audiences. Uh, the first thing I accomplished was becoming the beer judge. And of course you work your way up the ranks there from recognized to certified to national. Um, and that started for me, uh, from a homebrew hobby that just got way out of control. My curiosity of how these flavors come together, how these ingredients, these, these plants grow out of the ground or how this microbiology behaves once it encounters sugar and chemistry fascinated me. And so I just started peeling back the levels of the onion. And uh, started gaining more knowledge as time went along. Before you know it, I'm a mass amount of knowledge to take a test, have the confidence to take a test, and surprisingly, I passed it. So I kept taking tests, and I kept learning, and so uh, this whole thing has just allowed me to become really the Lexington's most professional drunk. Uh, so I'm very happy to <laughs> to wear that badge. I wear it with honor. Um, and then whenever I become you know manager of the beer trap, I realize that the knowledge of being a beer judge. You're using that knowledge and that vocabulary to talk to brewers about how to make their beers better. However, whenever you're a Cicerone, you're largely talking with the public. You're not talking with brewers anymore. So they're curious about the same types of information, but they don't want to discuss it in very scientific 
descriptive terms or very microbiological terms, physical terms. They want to hear the character of the beer. They want it to be a little bit more poetic. They want the language to be more friendly. So you had to learn how to use a more artistic language to talk with the customer. They don't really care about what made the beer taste this way. They're just curious on, hey, if I'm going to lay down four or five or six dollars for this glass of beer, and do I have a reasonable chance of liking it or not? So you have to use a different type of language, but it's largely saying the same things. When I talk to a, a brewer about his beer, if I detect a buttery flaw, I can talk about diacetyl character and what kind of yeast strains are prompted or most likely to, uh, to, to have that, whether it's acceptable in the beer and to what level. So I can use numbers. I can use nomenclature, and that's words that brewers understand. However, whenever I talk with a customer about that same kind of characteristic, I can say, well, this is an English beer, more than likely, and this character is acceptable at some lower levels, but maybe not at higher levels. If you like this buttery character, if you think it appeals to you, then try the beer. I think you could like it. So it's basically saying the same thing, but it's using two drastically different sets of language. And I love what you do as a, as a Cicerone, because obviously that is more of, of my, my speed, you know, going in and, and trying the different beers. Um, cause you can, I could basically walk up to you and go, this is what I like. It's Bud Light and that's it right now. What would be my starting point? And you can kind of walk someone through and give them suggestions and kind of work them toward maybe that craft beer life that, that we enjoy. Exactly. You know, I've had some customers to kind of beat me up a little bit, especially early on as I had to learn how to do my job and do it properly. Um, I learned very quickly, I can explain the character of the beer. I can explain this is the level of fruit character and what kind of characteristics of fruit there may be, the spice character, the bitterness character, how sweet it is. I can walk you through and I can tell you what the character of the beer is. And then that person may look at me and say, am I going to like it? And there's sometimes I, I tell them, I saw, at some point, you just have to turn up the bottle and see for yourself. So even though those words may sound very appealing to you, uh, until you try it, you might not know. So there's always that element of guesswork that goes into trying a new beer. But I think that the, the, the cool thing is, is even for adults, every time you open a new beer, it may not be December the 25th, but there's a little bit of Christmas in every bottle because you really don't know what you're going to get. Craft beer has exploded in the last 10 years. And I think that level of curiosity that's allowed in each and every one of us allows us to take that chance on that new beer. We know we may not love it, but just a curiosity of having something we've never had really appeals to us. So we're always looking for the new and the exciting, but sometimes the press, the beers creep up there. So we want some sort of guidance to know whether, hey, if we're going to dedicate ourselves to, you know, even $10 a beer, I need to know I'm going to like this. I may take a chance at a $4 beer, but maybe a $10 beer. I need someone like a Cicerone or someone that's well-versed in uh, beer vocabulary to explain to me, to give me some sort of confidence, either say yes or no. And I, I will say this, you've done a great job with that because I do remember the first time I went to the beer trap. I was still young in my days of, of trying craft beer and you, you pointed me in the right direction. So I appreciate that. <laughs> well, well, I'm very proud to have done that. So thank you for giving us a shot. Uh, well, before I get into kind of getting into some of that knowledge, what's your favorite thing about craft beer? What made you kind of go down that, that crazy road to be a professional drunk, so to speak? Um. You know, I mean, I guess you catch me on a different day. I can answer that question much differently. But, you know, right now, um, the friendly nature of the beer is. The one thing I love about working at a place like the Beer Trap is because wealthy folks can come and enjoy a beer. Poor folks can come and enjoy a beer. Men can come and enjoy a beer. Women can. Blacks can. Whites can. Beer has always been the common man's beverage. One thing I really enjoy is when you walk into a place like the Beer Trap, you may see seven or 750 different types of beer. You'll see that they range anywhere from $2 to you know, maybe even you know, $40. 
everybody in a basic middle come income class can enjoy every beer in there. You can't say that about scotches. You can't say that about bourbons. You can't say that about wines. There's a whole array of drinks out there you cannot say that about. Even though the flavors of the beer have gotten highly sophisticated, um, very complex, um, they have remained the common man's beverage. And I enjoy that. I enjoy you don't have to get dressed up to go to a brew pub. I enjoy that you don't have to have any preconceived vocabulary to, to go to a brew pub and enjoy a beer. You don't have to become a cicerone or a beer judge to enjoy any of that. So there's something about the camaraderie that comes with that all-encompassing um, everybody needs a beer kind of uh, mantra that we, that we live by. You can sit down at the bar and you can have a conversation with anyone and you're going to meet Middle Road somewhere over the beverage that you're having. I don't see that happening in any other beverages. It just happens in beer and that's the reason why I, I started with beer and I stuck with beer and I've never really ventured out to too much. We live in bourbon country. I'm very glad we're here. I love the mystique that the bourbon industry has placed over their product and how they represent themselves into the community. They cast Kentucky in a very nice light um, but once I got into beer, I just never really considered bourbon as a favorite beverage of mine uh, necessarily over anything else. I know I was talking with someone lately, and they said, would you ever think about getting into full-service bartending? And I'm like, probably not, because I really don't know anything about it. I don't even know what's in a rum and Coke. I have no idea. I would have to look <laughs> up to find out what's in a rum and Coke. You know, I have no idea why red wines taste like red and white wines taste like white. I think it has something to do with the white colored cranberries and the red colored cranberries, but I'm really not sure. So you're just going to stick with what you know best, and that's craft beer, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Exactly. We're talking with Kevin Patterson, National Beer Judge Cicerone uh, from Lexington, Kentucky. And Kevin, I'm hoping we can make this uh frequent thing because i want i love what i'm about to ask you and it's kind of lessons in beer and with that said you know fall is a time of kind of loggers and you're, you're away from the summery beers things like that so on a larger scale you know not getting too deep into the the breakdowns what is a lager and what could fall under that category so to speak okay well if you look at beer overall you're really looking at an umbrella then underneath that umbrella, you have several different sub-styles of beer that can be broken down. The two major groups of beer underneath that umbrella of beer are L's and lagers. Lagers are pretty much smoother beers that ferment at slightly lower temperatures. And so they take a little bit longer to develop their flavors and, and um, they, the yeast strain that's responsible for that just operates slightly different. It leads to a smoother taste, longer fermentation, and it had less, I guess, flamboyant kind of flavors. On the other spectrum, you have L's. And L's have a tendency to produce a whole lot of fruit flavors, a whole lot of spicy phenols. They handle hop characteristic or high hop characteristics somewhat better because of the uh, value in, in fermentation. Um, and so they have a tendency to be much more brighter, much more of a bigger array of flavors in the L category. Lagers are um, largely appealing because you know, whenever we started drinking beers, we probably started with something that our parents had in the fridge, which was, you know, the, the, the lighter industrial lagers. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with those. It's just those are very, very light flavored beers. You know, some people call them bland, and if they're not handled properly, so will I. But some of the more characterful beers are coming out. And this is one of the more exciting times for me is uh, because as soon as August rolls around, as soon as 4th of July is done, everybody starts getting to that malaise, that dog days of summer. But when I look at the beer shelves, here comes Oktoberfest. 
The problem is here comes pumpkin ales too, and I'm not ready for pumpkin ales, but I really do look forward to the uh, Oktoberfest beers. I just had a Founders Oktoberfest beer uh, recently, and I know that brewery has come under some scrutiny in the last year or two of how they've handled some racial inequality issues. But I did try their um, Oktoberfest beer, and it's actually quite good. It's just that familiar fall flavor, and I remember loving that flavor you know when let's say i turn 21 let's just say and uh whenever that happened you did it it at the right age you waited (laughs) that's right that's right why would anyone do it any differently i don't know um but the oktoberfest flavor i remember tasting one of those for the first time i remember it just kind of opened my eyes and every year at this time that first oktoberfest that i have of the season i get that same giddy feeling about beer and i really love that feeling and that you kind of segue perfectly because Obviously, for most breweries, they're onto their fall seasonal releases, and for most of them, that is an Oktoberfest. And typically, is that a Marzen? Is that kind of what they're they're doing, or what is the, their typical Oktoberfest that you would find uh, on the shelves from most uh, breweries these days? Yeah, traditionally, Germans they would make a what they call a fest beer. They make the fest beer for two different times a year: for March, which is Marzen, and for the Oktoberfest celebrations, what happens in actually late September, more so than October. Um, when they used to make lagers uh, before refrigeration came along, before we had an opportunity to chill beer down and to handle proper fermentation uh, temperature-wise, they were forced to do so at certain key times of the year. They could not brew during the summertime because in the summertime it was too hot and there's too much of a risk of mold contamination or other bacteria or spores in the air that could wreak havoc on the brewing process and render the beers undrinkable. So what they knew they could brew is during the fall, during the winter, and during the early spring. So what they would do to make an Oktoberfest is whatever surplus they had of grain that they did not use from the fall harvest through the winter and into spring, they would use the the, the what's left over in the harvest to produce a beer and they would call that beer the Oktoberfest even though it was made in the spring they would roll down the barrels of this beer to those caves or to the cellars in Germany to let them cold conditioned and to let them age out properly so that whenever the late September Oktoberfest celebrations came along that the beer would be ready to drink conversely whenever the harvest season uh, started you had this big surplus of grain so they actually make a big batch of the same beer at that point in time and the to kick off the traditional brewing season in you know middle fall late fall and then they would basically let those age out as well so when march came around and they had those spring festivals they could drink it then too you don't see a whole lot of marzins around anymore it just seems like whenever the spring comes around that we're much more into like the Belgian beers, floor characteristics for, for lighter fare. So the Martins kind of went by the wayside, but the Oktoberfest, uh, maybe four or five years ago, I was kind of scared that the popularity of those beers were falling off so quickly um, that there wouldn't be a demand, therefore there wouldn't be a product. Uh, but that's changed in the last couple of years. Last year, I saw a huge uptick in the sale of Oktoberfest beers around this time. And I think we're seeing the same thing again this year. So I think its popularity is really, really high. And I think it's time, you know, it's even though it's really, really hot outside, we're ready for a fuller lager. We're looking for something that has this like touch of nuttiness, a touch of toastedness, maybe not a whole lot of caramelization associated with it. We want that little bit of a hop bite, but nothing too serious. These beers are actually less hoppy than traditional German lagers, uh, which can be drier and a little bit more of an aggressive bitterness. Uh, Oktoberfest, they have just enough hops to take an edge off of the sweetness to keep it from becoming a chlorine beer. Uh, so I can see them having almost this minty or lemongrass kind of finish because of those noble hops they use from Germany. 
and it really does inform the characteristics of the, um, of the balance really well while allowing the beer to become a showcase for malt characteristics. Those malt characteristics are largely um, Vienna malts and maybe a touch of Munich malt. There's a very specialized German malt that you don't see in American brewery that much. Um, but whenever you taste them, you realize there's some subtle, there's some nuanced characteristics here. You don't get in any other beer. So it's a really familiar but very understated taste. And then you kind of touched on this. Around the fall, you also get, well, before the fall, truthfully, you get everything pumpkin. You know, pumpkin spice, pumpkin, you know, coffee, pumpkin this. And they do that in beer too. What, you know, what would you call pumpkin beer? How would that fall under because um, that's different than an Oktoberfest. You know, people might expect an Oktoberfest to have pumpkin in it, but that's not how that word works. Just because it might be colored orange on a can or a bottle, that's not what an Oktoberfest is. A pumpkin beer is something a little different. Yes, yeah, so a pumpkin ale is on the other side of the spectrum. That's an ale. That's not a lager at all. So what you're doing with a pumpkin ale is you're really not staying true to any kind of history or any kind of... Um, I guess tradition. Pumpkinella is a whimsy of American craft. And as soon as we realized, I guess O'Fallon uh, from Missouri was one of the first breweries to come out with a pumpkin beer that was just really coveted more so out of that region. So I think that once they made one, they started distributing out. Other brewers took note. They say, oh, everybody loves this O'Fallon pumpkinella. We can make one too. Now, I think over time, some of the old school guys, I remember when I got into homebrewing, some of the old school guys, they thought that a properly made beer was a beer that showcases the base style first, and then any other complementary flavor like pumpkin spice would accent it without over, overtaking the base style. Well, that's all changed. Fast forward 20 years, 25 years, and suddenly we want to be beaten over top of the head with pumpkin spice. We really do. If the beer doesn't taste like pumpkin pie with a graham cracker, with a whipped cream, throw in a <laughs> shot of whiskey, and I, you know, I mean, they, we want it all. And so the old timers would say, oh, well, the new guys, that's just flamboyance and, and, and taste. That's just irresponsible. There's a lot of reasons, I guess, to criticize today's movement. But really what it does mean is the uptick in uh, demand of flavor. And the, we call it palate shift. And as time goes on, once we have something, oh, that tastes good, guess what? I want more. So I think that every time we taste it, we want more. We want more. We want more. That's why we had IPA. Oh, now we want double IPAs or imperial IPAs. Oh, now we want triple IPAs. Can you make me a 50 times IPA? You know, so <laughs> it, it doesn't surprise me at some point we would go there. And that's just the curiosity of, of our flimsy and wanting just t a touch more. So pumpkin nails now have become something that's extremely strong spiced, extremely sweet, a little heavier. A lot of your better pumpkin ales, uh, like Schlafly now, it's probably the most popular one in this market right now, 8% alcohol. And so it's a stronger beer. It's an imperial status beer. It's meant for sipping, for savoring. You can't drink these for refreshment like you can some other beers. And so whenever you get a beer of that stature, of that magnitude, it's just so big in flavor. Really what you can expect is palate fatigue to come on fairly quickly. Those spices are so strong, the sweetness is very heavy, and so there's all these different things. The beer does become a cloying beer. When I say cloying, that means the beer is just so sweet and so heavy, it just hinders drinkability a touch. But it might be delightful as a sipping, as a savory kind of beer. There's a reason you sit down and enjoy a port wine. They don't give you 10 ounces of it. Okay, so the same thing happens in the beer world. So whenever you look for a pumpkin ale, they come in a 12-ounce bottle. That's way too much. So for me, I enjoy a couple of nice pumpkin ales, and I do like the stronger, sweeter ones, maybe as a dessert beer and digestive, maybe after a meal. Um, but uh, I, if I'm opening a 12-ounce bottle or 12-ounce can, I need someone there to split that with because I don't want all 12 ounces myself. 
I was going to say, you said it perfectly. Some of those are what what I dub those dessert beers that you have after the meal. And that's probably your last beer of the night. Cause you, you just not, nothing else is going to really work after that. That's your nightcap. And I'm going to, we're, we're talking with Kevin Patterson, Cicerone national beer judge, manager of the beer trap in Lexington, Kentucky. My last question for you is just an overall theme. What can people expect with most fall beers? You know what, when they go into a brewery, because they're probably not going to see all the summary stuff that they're used to. Um, there might be some styles of that still on tap, but what will people mostly should they expect uh, now that the seasons of beer, so to speak, are beginning to change? Yeah, it's a season of transition and taste. We see it on the food plates. It's not going to be long before uh, the more responsible restaurants they're switching to a fall fair because the harvest season is coming up uh, more butternut squash things like that come along well the beer does the same thing as the weather starts to cool a little bit it may still be really hot outside but the days are getting shorter so it gets a little cooler at nighttime so maybe you don't want that session ipa maybe you don't want that sour elk really deep into the evening you're ready to go for something with a touch more malt heaviness you're willing to go for something with a little bit more robust taste, but you're not ready for Imperial Stouts just yet. You're not wait, ready for Belgian Quads or Barley Wines. We'll wait till winter. You know, those are waiting in the wintertime, but we do want those transitional flavors. And we talk about Oktoberfest being one of those for the lager categories, but even like brown ales, some of your more subtle, you know, English porters, the brown porters, uh, things that have to touch of chocolate, a touch of much, a little bit more nuttiness, maybe even hints of coffee coming through a little bit. I actually enjoy this time of year, you know, everybody's firing up the grill, putting bratwurst on there. You're thinking that German heritage again. So bratwurst with something like an American amber ale that does have a little bit more malt characteristic, has a little bit of a hop bites, but it's not a clean, crisp, you know, IPA or, or lager, it has a little bit more gusto. It has a little bit more flavor, has a little bit more intensity on the malt edge. So I like for those beers quite a bit. I know the Doppelbox have traditionally been a spring release because traditions have meant that they, they're brewed and consumed in the spring. However, I like the Doppelbox for this time of year, something kind of malty, but yet very drinkable. You put that with a couple traditional bratwurst or currywurst, and I'm you, know, you just put me in the corner. I don't need anything else. Leave me alone for a happy hour. I'm in my happy spot. Uh, Kevin, I re really appreciate you talking beer, uh, giving us a little bit of lesson on, on the fall beers, the Oktoberfest, and even some of those pumpkin ales that'll be coming out. I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm happy to do so. Call, call anytime. Thank you again to Kevin Patterson for joining us for some uh, lessons in beer, talking about the fall beers, Oktoberfest, uh, even your pumpkin ales. Uh, we hope to have Kevin on uh, multiple times throughout the year, so if you have questions or there's a beer you want to know about, feel free to message uh, Hops and Spirits. We can ask Kevin or feel free to reach out to him directly. Look up Beer Catect uh, on Twitter and Facebook. Now joining us on the Hops and Spirits podcast is Adam Johnson, the Senior Director of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail Experiences for the Kentucky Distillers Association. Adam, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for taking some time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, I would have to think your job is about as cool as it gets being part of the bourbon trail am i correct you are not wrong uh yeah i definitely uh use that as one of my lines quite a bit because uh it's definitely a, a fun gig uh getting to work with you know so many of these iconic brands and distilleries and characters uh it's it's never a dull moment uh <laughs> with the people i get to work with you know um you know, the, the only lament sometimes is we don't get to see as many of our visitors uh, as, you know, our distilleries do because we're kind of, 
air traffic control a little bit in our, you know, bourbon tower <laughs> a little bit, but, uh, you know, I will not disagree with you at all. It's definitely a fun job. Now, for those that don't know what, not the bourbon trail, but the Kentucky Distillers Association, it's been around for, you know, more than a century. Uh, what's it, or at least kind of the formation of it, what's the goal of the Distillers Association and why is it so important for the industry? Yeah. Well, um, we really serve uh, at the pleasure of our members and really for our members. We're kind of um, the front line of the bourbon industry and distilling industry um, in Kentucky. So uh, our primary mission is to promote and protect um, our signature industry of, of bourbon. But, you know, I always kind of add in distilling as well because we have uh, several members who don't make bourbon but, and a lot of the same issues apply. Uh, but we're really kind of focused on technical, sustainable, uh, environmental issues. We also work on uh, heavily on legislative issues. And then uh, kind of my area is, is tourism, just because it's so important to our brands for them to be able to kind of share their, their stories and get people more involved with the brand. So it's really those three main areas. Uh, there's a lot of other things that fall under that, whether it's events or uh, making sure people are drinking uh, responsibly, um, just educating people on what makes bourbon so special. All those things kind of fall under our umbrella. You know, we've got a, a small team, but uh, I think we, we punch above our weight pretty well. Well, and one of the things that you all are probably most known for is the Kentucky Bourbon Trail and the experience um, that comes with that. When did the Bourbon Trail get started? Because, you know, talking to others in the industry, you know, going to to places, you know, to see the bourbon and all that wasn't a big thing until maybe 15, 20 years ago when it started to, the bourbon craze began to take off. Yeah, and it's a little bit of salt in the wound this year because we had saved up a bunch of fun content and things to do for people to celebrate our 21st birthday. So we've uh, been around 21 years and we were really trying to blow things out for uh, our guests who have helped us get, get us where we are uh, today. And, and I think it is fun to kind of look back at uh, the evolution and history of the Kentucky bourbon trail. Cause I think, I mean, as you just said, it, when it first started, it was, um, Hey, we, we, we seem to be getting, you know, some people here. How do we make things easier with uh, some directions and some signage and brochures and a website. And then it's just kind of evolved into um, you know, a world-class destination for all things bourbon. And really, it, I think credit needs to go two directions. You know, one, our distilleries have upped their game and made it much more immersive and experiential. Um, and people have really gotten behind the brands. And then I think if you, if you look at Kentucky's tourism industry, how things have really evolved around bourbon as well. I mean, we can just talk all day about the bourbon restaurants and the hotels and the uh, kind of um, accompanying experiences that people expect and enjoy when they come here. It's really helped attract a, a different style of visitor where we've really also evolved from, you know, a one day or a weekend trip to, you know, sometimes three, four, five a week, two weeks for people when they're visiting. I mean, that's a big deal, you know, as a tourism destination to to become um, something on that level that competes with other places like Napa or 
the Willamette Valley, you know, for wines. Um, and we're seeing other kind of whiskey trails pop up. Um, and I think it just shows the, the interest in the whole category. And, you know, we've been fortunate that our members have worked so long, as you said, KDA's been around over uh, a century since 1880. So I just think that esprit de corps amongst the members has really translated into a great experience for people because most go to more than one, right? I mean, you're mm-hmm. going to come in, you're going to pop into a couple. And so the fact that, uh, you know, you've got competitors recommending each other has really helped us, um, I think, uh, buoy bourbon up as a category. Um, and I always like to say, I think the, and I know it's self-serving <laughs> to a degree, uh, but I do think Kentucky Bourbon Trail really has helped um, more than I think people give it credit for sometimes of helping that bourbon category explode because so many people have come and so many people become evangelical about their experience and tell their friends and really do my job for me with, you know, tastings at home and, oh, I want you to come try this cocktail or whatever. And I think that's just kind of spread. So I really feel like each visitor we've gotten has attracted, you know, uh, many times over people to the the category and to the magic of bourbon. So um, I'm always appreciative of people coming in. Just It makes uh, my job so much easier. We're talking with Adam Johnson, Senior Director of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail Experiences for the Kentucky Distillers Association. And to, to me, it's always interesting, too, because on the tours, you get to see a plethora of, of distilleries, and they're all not the same. Some are brand new, and some are, you know, as old as Woodford. Now, while the brand is new, the facility itself and where, you know, is built, you know, dates back centuries so, I mean, pretty much you can kind of see almost, in essence, the history of, of bourbon and, and why it's here in Kentucky. I mean, that's, to me, what makes, I think, the bourbon trail so awesome. Yeah, and I think so often people say, well, this one was my favorite because I like the history. And then, so, and then they'll say, well, I like this one because I learned more about the science of the, the yeast. Or, or, you know, that's interesting that places like Wilderness Trail are using, you know, they're not using back set like, you know, the traditional sour mash, uh, they're using sweet mash process. Well, well, what does that mean? Well, that's interesting. So what we found is there's, there's a distillery for everybody. I I firmly believe that you're just going to connect with either your tour guide there or the setting or the history or just, and that really tasted good. And that's, that's my, my newfound bourbon. Um, so, and, and I think it's just totally changed from these kind of standard tours of, you know, 10 years ago to there's so many different kinds of tours. There's culinary things, there's different tastings, there's these cocktail classes. And I think it just shows how um, our distilleries have adapted to what the, the audience wants and they just want more. They just want to learn more. Uh, I've, I've always said when I do these type of interviews, what our tour guides used to talk about to what they talk about now is totally different because our audience is so much smarter, so much more into the esoteric <laughs> language of our per, of our uh, industry and so it's just been fun uh, watching um, the people that come uh, visit us just be so much more knowledgeable and so we've had to kind of give them more uh, get them more uh, behind the scenes more immersive stuff things like the Kentucky Bourbon Affair which is a big event we've done year in and year out um, it just shows man people want to go deep on this stuff so um, you're right. Everyone's different. And that's why I tell people, 
then you got to hit up a bunch, go big, go small, so you can see, you know, a different flavor at each um, distillery. I think you said you were talking to Pete earlier there at Town Branch. That's why, you know, go to a place like that, which is kind of mid-level, then pop on down and, and see Barrel House, you know, just down the street, or Pepper, uh, which is, what, 10 yards away from Barrel House there in the distillery yep. <laughs> district. And you get to see that kind of, you know, those different sizes. And then go to a place like, you know, Jim Beam where they're, I mean, to see that size and that scale or uh, wherever, you know, OZ Tyler. I mean, you're just going to, that spectrum is something that I think is very appealing to people to see. Um, man, okay. I, I know vaguely what bourbon is maybe when I come visit and now I've seen there's so many different ways to make it uh, and so many different uh, production scales and just see what that, uh, you know, what that final influence is on, uh, that spirit, I think people come back um, from those trips and those tours as, um, I don't know, I, just, I see them as future ambassadors for us. Oh, definitely. And they're, they're going to be spreading a lot of a lot of goodwill. And you kind of touched on it there a little bit. It's not just the big boys that are out there. You guys now also have the craft uh, version of the Bourbon Trail tours to hit all what I would call the little guys. Um, and they seem to be popping up uh, almost every <laughs> everywhere, which is a good thing yeah. uh, for for bourbon. But you, what what is the 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 craft tour uh, experience like compared to maybe the the larger scale bourbon trail experience? Well, I, it's interesting. I think some of it might be I don't know in my mind, and this I could be way off, but it's almost like a difference in timeline, if you will. I mean, some of these guys on the craft tour. Yes, they might be smaller, but I just think they're a little bit earlier in their, you know, brand evolution and and in history because they're just kind of getting started. So they may not be able to handle just you know the thousands of people that say a Makers or a Jim Beam or Woodford might get on a weekend. But I think you know maybe when we're celebrating our 42nd birthday, it might be a different story as they kind of grow. So I look at them as small, yes, but it's just they're earlier in their um, development. And so we love sending people there as a great um, kind of compliment to their bigger, just quote unquote, bigger distillery uh, tour experience, just because it just shows what uh, a difference in scale and how maybe a couple different approaches to things uh, might work, whether it's, you know, I'm using different entry proofs or I'm using um, the sweet mash process or, um, whatever the case may be, different aging techniques. I think it just kind of rounds out people's trip. And uh, I think sometimes too, you're going to run into more of the characters that run those places just because they tend to be kind of owner um, operator type establishments. So people love getting to sit down with the, the owners and the, and the makers. Um, whereas some of our bigger brands, uh, you, you know, you still got the Jimmy Russell's that are sitting there in the visitor center at wild Turkey every day which people love, but I think a lot of times some of the bigger distillers, those guys are just running all over the world promoting the brand. Um, so yeah, I think it's a great compliment. It's been a real pressure release valve for some of our bigger distillers when they're just uh, overrun on a Saturday that they can kind of, you know, pop in down the street and oh, I can't hit Heaven Hill right now, but I can go over to Willet or Preservation and Bardstown. And then I can kind of go back to Heaven Hill or a bigger place like Barstown Bur Bourbon Company. So it really helps uh, round out uh, the, the experience for our visitors. And you're right, we keep, they keep popping up. We got 19 on the craft tour now. 
And, you know, we've been talking to a, a few new distilleries, even during this kind of pandemic time, as they keep moving forward on opening and, and uh, getting their distillation running. So I, I see that number continuing to climb um, in the next uh, few months. Well, and, and you kind of touched on it in the, the fact that some of these guys are, are maybe early on because you actually have one that went from the craft tour to this quote unquote big tour. And that was wilderness trail. Correct. Yeah, uh, exactly. I mean, they started off, um, on the craft tour. They were really one of the, the early folks on that and just, they kept getting bigger and they keep making more bourbon. And, um, they just decided that, Hey, uh, we've upped our distillery, um, visitor center to handle more people. And we, we want to have more folks kind of coming in. So they, uh, jumped on up. Um, I will continue, I think to see, you know, more movement, uh, up as you know, that production level keeps, uh, climbing for some of our guys. You got, uh, quite a few kind of on the cusp there too. So, um, it definitely keeps our job interesting here trying to keep up with our guys. So, um, <laughs> it's good. And then, and it's always too, I, I love having people kind of graduate up because, it's just another reason for people to come back because, Oh, I may have missed, you know, wilderness trail before when I came a couple of years ago or, uh, you know, it seems like Willett's putting out a bunch of stuff and they've got a restaurant now. So, Oh, let's go check them out. So it's always adding something new to do for people, uh, which is really the number one request we get is like, what's new? What, what haven't I seen in a while? So I feel like we've got that in spades. We're talking with Adam Johnson, Senior Director of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail Experiences. And, and Adam, I also would have to say that, um, you know, some of the craft guys, while, they, while people may not, uh, or the, the smaller, small batch guys, uh, people may not go, ah, I don't want to check it out. But in all honesty, some of them are doing some maybe more progressive styles that you could learn, from, you know, learn something new. I'm guessing that would be a a way for people to experience uh, new things on the trail. Yeah. And I would think that uh, another big advantage right now for some of our craft guys is they were able to really capitalize a little bit quicker because they just tend to be a little bit smaller, probably less uh, bureaucracy or, you know, red tape to get through <laughs> of opening these kind of um, cocktail experiences and restaurants. So uh, if you kind of go down the list of people, um, they were a little quicker out of the gate once we were able to get that law change for them allowing for um, cocktails at distilleries, which is relatively new. I think that still surprises people like, oh, I thought you could always do that. And you really couldn't until a couple of years ago. So that's another good reason when you can you could sit down, you know, have a meal or uh, have a cocktail um, and really see the, um, the versatility and a lot of the spirits that people are making. And I think there's some innovative products that our guys are working on, whether it's new riff with their backsetter program or, you know, limestone branch with some of those rise that he's putting out with the pure malted. Um, I mean, you could go on and on about some of the innovations our guys are, are doing, you know, different barrel aging or different ingredients. So um, always something new to seek out uh, with those guys. And some of the events they're doing too are great as well um, because of that launching is really allowed for different events like the picking on the porch series that MB Roland has is always uh, a good example of just bringing in thousands of people on different weekends for music and drinks. And um, so I think, yeah, those guys always have something going on and 
it's even hard for me to keep up with all that they're doing. And, and Adam, obviously, you know, hopefully you guys were, or you were hopeful to celebrate a heck of a 21st birthday for, for the, the bourbon trail. Uh, but obviously COVID kind of switched some things up. Um, it did. And it did for a lot of the distillers too, because obviously with social distancing, bringing people in from all, all across America and, and really the world, um, how have you guys, or how has the bourbon industry in Kentucky kind of dealt with that? And, and uh, I know one thing some of them have done is make hand sanitizer, which I'm very thankful for. Uh, but how have they kind of adapted to this kind of new, uh, ever-changing normal? <laughs> yeah, it's, that's the million-dollar question. I'm, and I could say, you know, two things. One, the hand sanitizer effort right out of the gate was a, a massive lift for almost all of our members, whether switching production or learning the new rules uh, with the FDA and the federal government. Just, I mean, that's all we seem to work on right out of the gate because there was just such a need for it. And so many of our members and distilleries kind of stepped up and, and helped fill that gap. Some of our guys still continue to make it, still continue to ship it. Um, but I think a lot of that other kind of production that has traditionally done that has kind of caught up a little bit. But, you know, moving forward, I think our guys that are really using some of the things in the digital world, like other brands or other companies are using, you know, these kind of virtual cocktail hours. I know we were doing some stuff early on just to, um, you know, keep things uh, informational, you know, about what's going on, but also kind of educational on different brands. So I think that's mainly what you're seeing from our guys is, you know, brand um, and product information and just kind of fun tastings. I know some of our distilleries, they'll um, do some curbside sales and then they'll say, hey, you know, you bought this bottle, you know, in two days we're doing a, um, a Zoom tasting of it. So they're still getting a little bit of that interaction with, you know, between customer and brand, right? And I think that's that's pretty cool that people can can still get a new product and um, you know jump online and have the brand ambassador kind of walk them through um, the tasting of it. So we're still seeing a lot of events like that. I think just like anybody, you know, we're waiting to see what um, you know coming back for uh, visits really means. I mean, we're still operating under some pretty strict capacity guidelines, and rightly so. I mean, all of our guys want to do things. Um, in a safe manner, not only for the visitors, but for their employees as well. So um, that's really what our job has been recently is helping our, our members navigate um, CDC guidelines, you know, uh, orders from the governor, things of that nature, just to make sure everybody's uh, on the same page. Because we do want people coming back, but hopefully we can kind of get this virus uh, under control so we can get people back to more of those experiential things that have really made us uh, made our name, you know, it, it's hard for us to do the things that we used to do, um, uh, with the current, um, health situation. So fingers crossed, we're having, uh, everybody back uh, in Kentucky for some bourbon tasting soon. Uh, but right now uh, the availability is very low, uh, just due to, you know, we can't have a lot of people on these tours. We're talking with Adam Johnson, Senior Director of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail Experiences. And, and Adam, before I, I let you go, what's next for the Bourbon Trail and the craft tour? What do you guys, I mean, obviously you got to get past this pandemic, but I'm sure you're mm -hmm. looking well into the, into the future, into that crystal ball. 
Uh, what's what's next for you for you all? Yeah, I mean we're we're still working on some big picture uh, projects. We got some fun stuff coming up for kind of a general Kentucky bourbon campaign. Just uh, ways to educate people on that as a category, really on behalf of our entire kind of membership. So that's been fun to work on. I think people really like some of the stuff that we're doing on that. I think we're working toward some some streamlined information um, for both tours just to welcome people back. You know, we're working on some things that, you know, hopefully we got this thing um, under control in 2021 and, um, you know, working on plans to just let people know, hey, come back. Uh, we've got a bunch of new tours and, and visitor centers for you guys to see. So stay tuned for that. I mean, we're we're all kind of in the same boat as, as every business, just hoping we get um, things back um, a little closer to normal where we can have our bourbon lovers back. Well, well, fingers crossed that it happens sooner uh, than later. And Adam, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat today. Sure. Yeah, anytime. Thank you again to Adam Johnson for talking all things Kentucky Bourbon Trail. It's such a great thing. Uh, hopefully when uh, life gets kind of back to normal, folks can uh, come back in waves and enjoy what the uh, Kentucky Bourbon Distillers have to offer, uh, whether they're the big ones or the craft guys. Uh, so thanks again to Adam. Thanks again also to Kevin Patterson for our lessons in beer this week. Uh, before I go and give you all of our fun uh, Twitter, Instagram, all those social media handles, Coming up in next week's episode, we're going to have a lot of fun. It's a great interview uh, with some great guys in beer, but we're also going to be announcing something really cool in honor of our 10th episode. So make sure you uh, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hop Spirits to get all those details. And remember, you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Google, iHeart, TuneIn, Spotify, so many more. If you need a little extra help, go to gspodcast.com. And remember, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jmgreengs. It's at jmgreen with an E-G-S. Until next time, cheers, everyone. <laughs>